This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron. As always, I'm super stoked. In the spotlight today is a, a remarkable force, this, this collective of diverse technologists, designers, nerds, creative problem solvers. And what is their quest, you might want? Like, what, what are they up to? Well, to transform the way that we interact in a marketplace, making it community-driven, positively impacting, and above all, collaborative. So today in the studio, the virtual studio, I'm here with Andy Tu, the VP of Marketing for Whatnot. Now, Whatnot enables anybody to turn their passion into a business and bring people together through commerce. Super interesting space. First and foremost, Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, chat a little bit more about Whatnot. I love it. You in, in the in the prep kind of conversation we had, you said something about you being marketing obsessed, which I, I I caught that. I was like, ooh, this is good. We have a marketing leader who is marketing obsessed, but the way you said it sounded interesting to me. Um, and I also know that your background's super interesting, Andy. We're gonna dive into into the business, but it looks like for you, at least from what I could tell, the beginning of marketing was like you were a copywriting intern. Is that kind of where the marketing dance started for you? Oh, going way back. Um, yeah, uh, when I was in college, I, I had a chance to work at, at an agency called uh, Foot Cone and Belding during between my junior and senior year. And I'd say, I, you know, I went to this school that was not known as a big advertising powerhouse and we were just sort of the weird kids in the corner doing our own thing. And so to leave college in the middle of Iowa and go to a coast or go to California and go to this agency. I, mean, I remember walking in the first day and, and you know, it, was, it was like your traditional agency from the movies. It was like surfboards on the walls and ping pong table out. And, and as somebody who didn't know any better, that dose of, whoa, this is, is sort of like a, a real job and a real place was a bit of a shock to the system and had a summer there. And I did all the jobs that no uh, copywriter or designer wanted. I ghost wrote for uh, Smokey the Bear and wrote a newsletter that went out to thousands of kids. And I wrote um, Taco Bell menu items that nobody wanted to do. But for me, um, it was a blast. And it was, um, again, sort of if an internship is anything of this glimpse into reality of what it might be like to have those jobs someday, I was pretty in. And then bizarrely, that summer, 
um, I had a cousin who worked at AOL and this is the first wave of performance marketing. And it's so funny to think about this now, flash forward many, many years. But my cousin and some of his colleagues realized that this first wave of performance marketers, people like Netflix and AmeriQuest Mortgage and Experian, um, one of the names of the game was building thousands of creatives. And nobody internally or at these clients could make thousands of creative. And I knew my way around Photoshop enough to maybe hack out a fake ID here or there. <laughs> and so he came to me and he said, here's a banner. And you got to think that this is an era where you're seeing the worst banners in the history of time. And he's like, could you make one of these? I had never made an internet banner before, but I said, sure, maybe. Wow. Um, and so hacked out a bunch of those over the course of the summer. And then it was that was my in to AOL. So after my internship, um, ventured off into AOL and I did not make banners there. But uh, that same nice group of people said, come get a real job here. And we promise you don't have to make banners anymore. And um, that's where I spent the first few years of my career. Wow, that's awesome. So so you have this interesting connection with the design side of things, kind of like self-taught design, which I love that piece. Sometimes I'll have an opportunity to connect with like a modern day CMO who has that kind of right brain, left brain thing going on where they've got the design ability as well and they can go data and strategy all day. So I love kind of your interest there. And then you got to work, was it like a few years at AOL? Man, that's legendary. In its time, right? I think we, we we look back and it just holds this special place in internet history, but it's definitely taking a lot of twists and turns. I can't, someone asked me who owns AOL the other day. I, I, I didn't, uh, I tried. I didn't even know who, who owns it anymore um, or what shape it's currently in. But yeah, in its era, right? It was the de facto front page of the internet. And you have, this is pre Google being the Google that we know. And um, AOL and Yahoo were, were sort of the, the, the mainstays in the portal business. So it was a great launching pad for my own career and places where not only I learned a ton, but met incredible people who I'm still close with today who taught me a ton and continue to be people that I, I stay close with and, and have been a huge part of my career. So when did the kind of the dance with marketing begin? I mean, you, had, you said you're doing some copy and some design. It looks like you were actually getting into sales, which I love your sales experience. And then you, you jumped into being like a marketing leader at Break Media and then went on to be a CMO. And, and you, have, you have a lot of marketing leadership experience. But what was that moment in time of like, wait a second, there's something to the marketing world more like full suite. It looks like you just dove all the way in. Yeah. My first chapter of my career was all in account management and then sales strategy, which is sort of one foot in the sales side and one foot in um, the marketing side. And what I liked about that or what attracted me to that after a couple of years in account management, account management is incredible no matter when you do it in your career, because it forces you to really be that glue that holds your business together and feel from the outside. And you, you can't do a bad job at that. I mean, you really have to say everything stops and starts with me. When my phone rings and my email goes off, someone usually needs something. Um, so I think it gives you a broad base to build from, but I knew my long-term plan just wasn't, it wasn't creative enough for me. And I want to go back and clarify, you mentioned, uh, design and copy. I will never masquerade myself as either a copywriter or a designer, <laughs> but as one of the, I feel like there's a generation of us that, you know, we were the first people that go to college with a computer. And, um, so you, you kind of had to, because you were just tinkering and exploring this stuff for the first time. So shout out to my actual copywriters and actual designers. I, I'm not... I did not, I'm not cut from the same cloth, um, but, but uh, first to recognize that's an important role. Um, and then after a couple of years in account management, I knew it just didn't have enough of that um, creative background for me. And there was this small group of people that were this sales strategy um, or integrated marketing team. And what I loved about them is 
you were still adjacent to the sales organization, but you were trying to come up with those innovative campaigns. And because I was in the LA office, you had a very strange mix of um, this sort of upstart of performance marketers, then the two categories that I think drive a ton of marketing activity. One is entertainment. And so they're always the first to do something innovative, do something fun, try to push the needle. But once the movie's out, it's sort of like, see you never, right? It's on to the next one. And then you had auto. And auto is the big budget and the splashy campaigns and trying to build against these very long customer journeys and life cycles. So you have to kind of always be relevant on these. Maybe you're buying a car once every three or five years. And it's strange that that weird hodgepodge of base of auto entertainment and performance marketing of big brand moments, but also always that underpinning of, of performance marketing really drove my career. And you had to come up with ideas that were going to have big splashy moments, but also drive people's business. Um, and then you mentioned I went to what eventually became known as Defy, that company called Break, um, that this is pre-lazy Sunday YouTube. This is internet video is nascent, but people are going to go to websites. They weren't even going to download apps yet and watch video. And the rest of the media ecosystem was changing very quickly. And it wasn't um, very easy for people on the brand side to understand why. Um, things like the main stage, mainstay places where young guys were getting their content, places like Spike TV or Maxim Magazine, there was about a two-year stretch where all those places um, eroded very quickly. And it's because what we now know and we, we knew working at these companies is that every young guy um, was on their computer and they were getting a computer for the first time and they were going to these websites and eventually downloading these apps. Um, they weren't sitting in front of their TV or going to magazine stands. So you saw this shift happening of, gosh, it used to be so easy to buy a commercial during the X Games and suddenly you were selling a lot of Mountain Dew. Marketers didn't have it so easy because so much change was happening so quickly on where their consumers were spending time. And that was a nice place to slot in and be one of those businesses that was actually growing with those audiences and try to shape both brands and the business around it. Spent a couple of years there on the sales side, but again, very quickly was thinking, how do we build the actual brand of Break and all of our sub brands? And we launched things like Screen Junkies, which is now still a very thriving and popular YouTube channel um, and followed that for 10 years. So I won't bore you with 10 years of internet video and brand building history during that time, but it was, it was fun to be in a space that changed so rapidly. And what were these nascent digital brands ended up being places that built full-length movies and long-form TV shows. Um, and you know, media is a fun world, but after 10 years there, I was also really excited to, to take on other challenges and, and think about uh, other type of brand building as well. Yeah. And, and that you did. I mean, look, you, you consulted for a minute and then you, you ended up at Postmates, which, which went through an acquisition uh, to Uber. And, and that's, I want to touch on that because that's got to be an interesting time uh, to be a part of a brand. And then also, you know, look, Postmates, hit i mean they're blurry they're exploding they're doing well you join them to really lead their consumer marketing function all the brand strategy you know campaign development all those things but take us into that experience i mean what's it like working inside of a brand that's moving with a lot of velocity but then also touch on what it's like to go through acquisition and some of the things you're thinking about leading brand leading marketing in that period yeah and i joined postmates and it was already a scaled brand, but it was a nice starting point of when I joined and a couple others joined the team around the same time to say, we have a solid brand. We really know who we are, but there's a moment where we want to flex up, right? We've taken some of this capital with an intention to grow in different ways, scale the brand in different ways. And having the charter be so clear when you start a job is fun because it says, um, we want to flex up. We want to take on some of these things that we haven't done in our past. In the case of Postmates, one of those things was clearly 
national media for the first time. And it um, wasn't because there was an obsession to do, hey, we have to be on TV or nothing else. It was, we need to grow and we need to grow in uh, differentiated ways from where we've grown in the past. So if you look at um, our, our first outing was a national television campaign with Martha, Martha Stewart. And the creative insight there was if Martha says it's okay to order food through food delivery, then it's okay for anyone. And at the time, I wasn't running marketing. I was on the marketing team and leading some of our brand efforts, branding a little bit of a catch-all probably for brand and integrated marketing functions. Um, and then as we flash forward a couple of years, we're still in hyper growth mode. We scaled the brand to a lot of different markets outside of our traditionally mainstay markets, which were LA and other Southwestern markets. Um, we get bought and it's interesting being in a challenger brand and Postmates was the fourth largest food delivery brand in the US with no real direct line of path to be our uh, line of sight to be the number one or the number two. So we always had to keep that challenger brand mentality. Then we got bought by one of the brands that was challenging us. Um, so we all went to go work at, at Uber Eats. And you know, that I think for internally that massive cultural shift of we used to you know, go toe to toe with them. Right. And we used to use that as a motivating factor for all of our work and all of our teams. It would even influence how we hire. We sort of had that pirate ship mentality. So when you're the punk rock radio station that get bought, gets bought by the top forties radio station, you have to go through this journey of, um, does that sit with us? And how do, how does that work for us as the, do we don't have as much of a voice as the acquiree brand? Um, so I'm really proud of the team for coming through the other side and finding our home at Uber. Um, we, we market in a very different way. We show up as a team in a very different way. And so for us to keep that identity, and even though I'm not there anymore, I'll always have that, that sort of Postmates into my DNA as a learning experience. And Uber welcomed us with open arms. Um, acquisitions are hard. You learn a ton from them. Um, I think one, one of the big learnings is that just being there for a couple of years and committing to yourself and to the team and to the brand that um, you're going to, you're going to have definitely more hard days than easy days during an acquisition. Um, and I think the the worst thing you can do is sit on your hands and just wait for what might happen. You definitely have to be a willing participant in what's the journey for you and your team at that, at that other company. Cause you think there's some dialed perfect plan and there generally isn't, you got to build it in partnership. Amazing. What, so was it, was it challenging for you just individually to commit to, to be okay, like it's happening again. You said this, look, this was a competitor. This influenced a lot of the things we did internally, but now all of a sudden we're joining their family. Was this a, was this like a moment of like 11th hour, like, gosh, what am I going to do? And I'd like to, to, to hear that. And then the other thing is, what did you learn? Like, what areas did you grow then as a marketing leader and brand leader once you did decide to stay at Uber? Yeah, that chapter of the acquisition, you know, it, being at a late stage company that gets purchased from the outside and never gone through that experience before feels like what all the work is for. You know, it's like we were here and it was the right time and all that work paid off. And so I'm not going to you know, say that that was, a, that was a bad experience by any means. That's a huge learning. Um, the learning and the tough part is one, it was COVID. And so if you look at March 2020, there's so much going on in the world, but specifically for food delivery. It's a very strange time as a marketer because I don't know that before March 2020, um, anyone working at Postmates, and I won't speak for anybody else working at food delivery, but I would assume that most people didn't say we we are a critical must-have service for the world. Uh, it very much felt like this ancillary extra thing to get someone to bring food to your house. But then overnight, almost, you go into the second week of March, um, 
we really did feel like a critical service. And you have all three sides of our marketplace changing and essentially you know, doubling-ish um, over a short period. And for all very different reasons, you have people who are at home and they're scared and they're wondering if this is even safe, but demand goes up remarkably. You have restaurants who I think were always a little bit on the fence prior to COVID of food delivery, friend or foe, some brands leaning in early and having massive success, others being a little trepidatious for understandable reasons. Uh, but suddenly in a week, they said, if we're not on food delivery, restaurants uh, future will be uh, unpredictable. And then you have a lot of people entering in wanting flexible earning in the gig economy um, for, again, a bunch of different reasons. But it's a time for a marketer to say, what can we say? We pulled all of our ads immediately. We felt like it was a, a sort of a, a, an odd moment to be, especially for a brand that showed up in the world in such a joyous way of what do we say? How do you say it? And how do you now service the three sides of our marketplace who suddenly look, us, look at us in a very different way than they did a couple of weeks ago? So that was a big learning moment. We were all heads down. We were building campaigns in real time about supporting your local business and doing it in a fully distributed world. Then you flash forward, a deal is announced in June of 2020. Just having a headline that says your company's being bought is already just anxiety inducing. But because of the nature of our space, there's a very long um, DOJ review for our deal. And so we don't become Uber employees. It's June 1st. We don't become Uber employees till March 1st, 2021. Wow. Sitting there for nine months wondering, What's going to happen? What are they going to do with us? What are we doing with that, et cetera? While you're still trying to manage a very scaling business, um, it was you know, educational, but, but challenging. Um, you know, I was lucky, lucky to be a group of leaders at Postmates that was also part of our integration team. So I got to see how this was all going to piece together a little bit before the rest of the company. But for sure, harrowing to come in and say, what's going to happen to us? Do I personally have a role in this new environment? Does my team, um, you're sort of trying to stand in front of your team as a bit of a human shield and say, um, I don't really want all of this rumor mill stuff that's happening around the integration to impact you because you want to do great work. And I think for my team of folks um, and some colleagues, one thing that that chapter was so important is saying, don't worry about what's going to happen. We can't really control that. What we can control is the stuff that gets out the door. And some of the best stuff that we ever did was during that stretch. Um, and then even after we became an, a, a sub-brand under Uber, um, you know, we, we won a can lion as a group for this project that um, was called the Postmates Don't Cookbook. And that was during that COVID year. Um, and so to have that as a bit of a calling card, once we showed up at the Uber front door of like, yeah, this little ragtag group had come up with this concept, had gotten out the door and we're getting a bit of industry attention around it was, was, very rewarding and very fulfilling to say, you know, we still got it, even though we're a little beat up during this chapter. Um, that was that was fulfilling. I love that. Would you, if you could go back and whisper in the ear of, you know, younger Andy, like in that period of acquisition, like, would you, would you change anything different? What would you tell him? I think having sort of the, there were definitely days where you're telling yourself something in the mirror that's not exactly what you're telling your team, which is a little bit more of, Hey, this is hard for me too, or this is anxiety. I would go back to anxiety inducing because it was very bizarre to be like, what's going to happen to us? And so you had to put sort of a, a face on for your team of stability and of, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. And be as vulnerable enough to know that you don't have some perfect answers. Everybody in every department, it doesn't matter if you were in customer service or account management, if you thought, hey, this person has some inside track of information that I don't have. I'm going to, I was getting hit up from everybody at the company of what's going to happen here. What are we going to do with this? Are they changing our health insurance provider? Are they doing these things that affect you very personally? 
And sometimes it was the safe, the, the most appropriate answer was, we don't know. And I wish I did. And um, we, we sort of have to balance what we do know and what we don't. And still, the best thing we can do is show up as actual Uber employees with great work under our belt and a business that's um, thriving and doing well. So I don't know that I have some hack that was something I wish I would have whispered. I do think um, you know, the, the learning and takeaway is, is it was a bit of that classic, like one foot in front of the other. And just there's don't wait for this momentous, like, hey, in three months, this thing is going to change. It was like, hey, there's the positive momentum of getting through this experience, getting through the days is um, it's a slow progression. Um, and I did have the, the benefit too of sort of some very smart Uber folks that um, were nice enough to sort of invite us to the table and say, um, here's what we think this is going to look like, but we don't know your business as well as you do. And I think as we started to find that shift and find those people who were um, didn't feel like they had to come to us with this like perfect answer and perfect solution was was wildly helpful. Awesome. Okay, so Andy, I'm curious now to shift into the really exciting thing that you've been working on for the past six months. And that is this really epic brand called Whatnot. First, kind of set the table for, for our audience and just tell us about live commerce. Like, what is live commerce? And then how has this really evolved into what it is today? Because it's so interesting. Yeah, live commerce is pretty on the nose. It's people selling live, which is the part that feels like as an outsider, it's really easy to understand. Um, how it actually works and why it works, at least in Whatnot's case, I think is a bit more nuanced. Because it's not just people going live and selling stuff. Um, we often get paired, compared to brands like QVC or people see the explosion of live commerce in China. And um, that is your more traditional QVC style model where someone who is um, very engaging and is a pretty face is selling products which are likely net new to the market. Um, and take your traditional website and sell the same stuff that's on your website, but sell it through uh, live. That's very different than how we express to the outside world. So while it is live commerce, people are live selling. Thousands of sellers are going live every single day. We have focused on enthusiast communities first. And a big part of Whatnot's success um, over the last three and a half years since the company was founded was really tapping into these communities where, yes, you can transact, but the products and the communities are so intertwined that the thing that you love and the people that you love that buy and sell them are one and the same. And... Our first category was Funko Pops. Um, I can be totally honest that three and a half years ago when Whatnot started, I didn't know what a Funko Pop was. And so now that I'm here, I understand that it's, it's you know, you, you see them everywhere, you see them in Target, but it's a very specialized market that has wild amounts of collectibles and a lot of different versioning and a lot of things that tap into um, a community of buyers and sellers that are deeply passionate about Funkos. And what we learned about Funko cascaded quite well into other buyer communities and seller communities where, um, again, it's not just a face selling stuff that's on a website. It's very credible voices buying and selling things that uh, people are deeply passionate about. Uh, and, and that enthusiast network and that collectible categories were definitely um, early signals of both success of, but well, we're onto something here as a business, but also that um, something was underserving those communities of buyers and sellers in the wide world of, of e-commerce. With the enthusiast communities, I mean, that's it can also be pretty vast, right? Like the enthusiast community can be vast. How did how did the whatnot squad like think? Okay, well, where are we going within the enthusiast realm? One clear starting point was what were the founders of the company passionate about, and okay. they were big buyers and sellers of both Funko and 
a couple of folks as a part of that early team um, had worked at sneaker resale markets as well. So they really understand not only marketplace dynamics, but what it was like to be passionate about these products. And um, being founded by collectors guides a lot of our work even today of they're not building a product for someone else. They're building a product for themselves and they're building a product that they know. Um, you know, one of the things that unifies them is that they're, they're, they are underwhelmed by buying and selling on other marketplaces, you know, that I won't name by name, but I think we all know the de facto places that, you know, you buy and sell things that you care about. And so um, that really drives the team in a, in a meaningful way. That's awesome. I, I, lo- I love the origin connection because it's like, that's, that's also going to, to me, that's going to spur a lot of momentum internally. It's like, if you start there of like, what do we, what do we care about? Like, let's start there. And then I know that now whatnot is there's so many categories that are being supported. Um, but there's also, there are also opportunities for folks who don't have like a lot of influence, but have a passion for the specific thing to also come on and, and, and find some real momentum in the platform. Right? No question. We have people who, um, you know, because live selling is so new, it's not like people say, I must live sell. That is my plight in life. We find people who are deeply passionate and care about their products first. Um, it's better if those people are um, strong digital marketers or strong digital sellers. So they might be selling on another marketplace. They might have a Shopify store. Um, but once I think they get that magic window into, oh my gosh, like I can do the thing that I love doing over here. Maybe it's in a brick and mortar location. Maybe it's selling on a, on a traditional marketplace, but I can do that and feel that real time connection to the people who buy those products or the people who are in my community with me. And it doesn't matter if it's sports cards or Funko or quilting or coins. You see that magic moment where someone who's selling starts to have fun and they start to get in the groove and they, they're like, Oh my gosh, like there's no, it's sort of like that blue pill moment of like, oh, I'm down this path. Like I can't go back. I can't see the world like it was before. Um, so we, it's very fun to see people embrace live selling who are likely already passionate about these products in some other place. What would you say is like the differentiator? Like how does what not differentiate itself? Because what makes it sticky? There are other, there are other players in the space trying to get into the space or new to the space. What's separating what not from them? Part of that is that go-to-market strategy of really focusing on enthusiasts first um, because those enthusiasts are so deeply passionate. And um, then the second is is a lot of our company ethos and incredible culture at the company, but also being so user-obsessed and user-centric. Um, so much time here is spent on, let's talk to users. Let's see what this looks like in front of people. So I think it's marrying our go-to-market strategy with um, a company that really wants to, to make a great product for our communities of buyers and sellers. Um, and then you match that with it's an incredible team building a world class product. The technology team here is like nothing I've ever seen before. So it actually works. And live on its own is hard. You talk to anybody that's in live streaming, that's difficult. Commerce is hard. You talk to anybody who built a commerce platform, you marry those things, two things together. And now that I've been here and done a fair number of, of marketing activations that are live, you know, it, it's, it's as real as it gets. You know, the camera's on, the experience is live, the experience is real. So, I think it's, you know, there's no silver bullet answer, but it's that kind of marriage of an incredible product married with a smart go-to-market strategy. And we know the team is dope. We are, we, we, we talked to Liz, we know after talking to you now, it's like, there's some magic, the folks internally, there, there's some things happening in there at the, in the whatnot uh, world. Um, is it about the connection that customers feel like with the items being sold or is it the sellers themselves? Like, where does it, where does it land there? It's an, it's a constant question we ask ourselves of as the products, um, I want to say you're ubiquitous, but you can definitely get the products that you get on whatnot in other places. 
So it is about that relationship that you have with the seller themselves. And um, I'd encourage everybody who sort of tries to understand the mystique of what not a lot of people interview to come work here. And there is this point at which you become obsessed with it. And I liken it a lot to early era YouTube, where on the outside, if you didn't get it, people were talking about YouTube and YouTubers like they were aliens that came from a different planet. But if you were in it and um, you were seeing that interaction every single day of people were not relating with YouTubers like they did with their traditional talent or stars, it was like they were talking to their friend and they were talking to somebody that they had a personal connection with. So it, I do think it's a very deep relationship with the sellers married to the seller cares about a product in the community as much as I, as the buyer do as well. Mm. So you're in this rocket ship for the first six months now. So about, it's about six months. Is that right? Yeah. Just over, I think. Okay. Just over six months. So, so back us, back us up to the beginning and what, just talk us, just talk us through like, what are you doing in the first, you know, 39, you know, 60, 90 days. I mean, look, you, I've talked to a lot of marketing leaders that have a certain approach when they join a brand in the beginning. And like you're joining a brand that's like, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of potential. There's a lot of velocity. You're also coming with a lot of experience and perspective coming from Uber and Postmates and being a marketing leader. What's your first order of business when you, when you're in the whatnot, like you're, you've joined, it's official. What are the things that you're doing in those early days? Yeah, because I'm the first marketing leader here, but not the first marketer by any means, a lot of it is coming in and meeting our team and getting close to, you know, what are, what are we great at and what do we aspire to do that we might not be able to do? I think the hallmark of the whatnot marketing team today is incredibly talented, scrappy group of people, but it's been this group of, of generalists that can kind of run at whatever comes through the door. And so one day it could be, you know, the biggest event activation. One thing it could be very talent driven. One thing it could be more ground level blocking and tackling of seller enablement. But this pot of people has flexed and made it work um, and just keeping up with the growth of the business. Part of it has been, let's pump the brakes and figure out we do need to scale. We do need to build out a team. What functions, if we could add them to this great group right now, are either missing or that we're only getting 10% or 20% of our bandwidth against that are wholesale functions that we should invite somebody else into our sandbox to come do those things and probably and hopefully do them better than we're able to do them today. So a lot of time spent on recruiting, building out a team while keeping the campaign and, uh, and the engine moving. The two biggest levers that we pull as a marketing team are influencer and events. And so it's also trying to make sure that we're set up to scale it's timely because we're in the thick of con season right now, which we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit. But we are looking for the the purists and to build our brand in like those core enthusiast communities. And there's not a place that's the perfectly on the nose. If there was a billboard I could buy that said, get every Pokemon collector to see that billboard, trust me, we would have done it by now. We've got to go and find these hard to find niche communities and be incredibly real and authentic to them if we're going to attract them as either buyers or sellers. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I want to double click on the recruiting kind of piece for like, what is your approach to just finding high performers? And especially like, like you also have a, there's a time, there's a timetable. You're inside of a really cool org that needs to bring these, like you said, this is the right kind of roles. Do you have an approach to like, yeah, finding high performers and then what's your approach to bringing them on and making sure they're the right fit? Yeah. I, I, don't, I want to make it sound like we're doing something totally different than ever been done before, but whatnot is a different business and you have to see people's passion. I don't think people will come to here and just get a job and have a nine to five. You see this buy-in of they are all in on whatnot. And so recruiting, a lot of it is finding that calibration of people who are excited about what we're doing and have the right experience, but can bring that full experience and come in and go 
you know, people talk about like bleeding what not yellow, like they can bleed what not yellow. And then on the flip side of that, we have a lot of folks because of just the passion that we've brought to these communities who are passionate about whatnot, but they also have to have the chops. We're a new brand. We have a lot of stuff to build. So we're looking for people who have pretty specific experience. We do a ton of uh, company profiling of, okay, that person's been at a place that's gone from zero to one to scale before. Um, so I think a lot of it isn't some um, exact answer on who we're looking for, but can they go all in on whatnot, which we seem to be the hallmark of anybody who's been successful here, married with, do you have the right kind of experience? Um, you don't have to have worked at a marketplace. You don't have to have worked at a consumer brand, but there have pe- been people who've been down this journey of scaling um, similar types of brands that we can learn a ton from. You have a lot of experience with just like creative and like, you know, either coming up with creative or being involved in the creative process. What's it look like for Andy just to like think and like let these things come? Because I'm sure you brought stuff to the table. What does it look like now in 2023 for you to to get the cre- to be the creative Andy? Um, is there a process you employ? You know, is there something you do? Do you go in nature? Do you listen to hip hop? Do you eat ice cream? Like, because it's it would seem like that would be an important aspect of you know being able to dial that up and down as a as a marketer and a leader, especially where you're at now. But just what are your thoughts on just to get your creative juices flowing. Yeah, so so much of um, marketing is not a team or is, is is a team sport. And so I don't, it, for me, it's not to go by myself and be in isolation and think that you come back from, you know, your wander in the desert with three amazing ideas. Somebody does have to take that first brave swing. And so I'm not a believer that you just come into a room cold and, you know, you do your traditional brainstorm. Um, people do need to, I think, have the space to come up with an idea, but then you got to bring it back to the team sport. And you've got to be able to have a group of people that you trust and that you um, are willing to be vulnerable in front of and say, I'm going to share a bad idea with you. I'm going to share uh, something that I've got some conviction around with you. And then you have to be able to chop that up with this cross-functional team that I go back to trust because I think so many people love this idea that they're going to brainstorm or they're going to be radically can't have a radical candor around ideas, but if you don't trust or like the people that you're sharing ideas with, or you don't, you aren't willing to be vulnerable with them, I don't think you can be open to their feedback and say, Hey, that idea that you had, um, was trash, but <laughs> there was some kernel in there that we should build from. And that goes both ways. I don't care what level you're at, or if you've worked here for six months, or if you've been part of the founding team, you've got to be willing to say, um, I like these people enough, or I trust their instincts enough, or I, I trust their feedback enough to, to want to, throw ideas out to them, good, bad, or otherwise. And that's something that, um, you know, we got, we got quite good at at Postmates was, I don't care if you are a, a designer or a writer or um, somebody who was in research, um, there was a, a pretty full expectation that if you were going to touch our consumer-facing work um, or our creatively driven work, you were going to come to play and you were going to bring your ideas. Um, and, you know, I think internally here, um, because marketing is is... I don't want to say new, but it's been, um, I think that same squad that I mentioned of sort of taking whatever comes to the door. I don't think we've built some of that stuff in here, uh, into our team of like really creating that team sport and that collaborative environment to, to shape the work that goes to the outside world, but we're working on it and spending time there. Yeah. And some of these things are, I mean, the, some of the partnerships, I mean, or even just like the giveaways, like the trip to space, uh, you know, partnerships with celebrities like Patrick Mahomes. And there's been some epic things, like you said, these ideas are just coming about by just people coming together and saying, here's, let's, let's do this. Is this kind of how it's happening is just come to the table and talk? A lot of it comes down to what's going to play in these communities, right? So when we show up as a brand and we really, it does, again, it could be a, um, it could be 
a booth at a conference. It could be a, a cool live experience that you want to check out on the platform. Those have to resonate with people who have a very tightly attuned BS meter on the consumer side. And they want to feel like, okay, I, I want to check out that experience. I, I want it to play in this environment where like, I'm all about the products that are authentic to me. I'm, I don't like to be sold to. I like to feel like I'm a part of those experiences. So you mentioned a couple of those examples. Um, any of those are held to the test of, is this going to get the community that's intended for really, really excited? And one that I can mention that I take no credit for since it happened well before my time was um, with Post Malone. And so while a lot of brands are working with Post Malone and he's a global superstar, what we knew the magic unlock there was is Posty's a huge Magic the Gathering player. And it's not that often that everybody in the world knows this super famous person is also a you know deep cut community member that's very authentic in the magic community. And so for us, it wasn't just get Posty to do something. It had to connect with Posty and magic fans in a very pure way. And so you know, much to the credit of the team, this, this concept was win the chance to play Post Malone for a, a, a million dollars in magic. And um, people went crazy in the magic community and it attracted a whole bunch of new people to the platform. It also had an effect of after we had that, um, that moment and brought the magic community together, a lot of new sellers came to us and said, hey, you, you get it. You understand how magic works. You build these interesting and, and collaborative experiences for um, magic purists. We want to come sell on your platform as well. So the best marketing here can drive both buyer interest and seller interest. Is that approach still is still being employed to you know find people like Post Malone and others? And, and if, if it is, what is the approach to getting them to like, yeah, to really say yes to this of the thousand things they get, you know, approached with, because that's such a cool, unique opportunity. And, you know, Post Malone's a great example. There's just a lot of things going on. What's the approach to get someone like that to say yes to whatnot? It goes back to similar answer to recruiting. Uh, um, they, they don't have to know exactly what whatnot is. They don't have to be a whatnot purist, but they have to get it of why is this going to play inside of a community. And typically in Posty's case, he was in that community. He knew it was going to play because he was just as much of, yeah, as a person who loves magic, this is what would be interesting to me. Um, so I do think they have to get how these communities work and typically be a part of them in some way. If you look at Mahomes, one thing I love, a, a lot of people can put Patrick Mahomes live. Um, Mahomes went live for his charity, but also we threaded it as something that was really authentic to the collectibles and the sports card collector community. It's no coincidence that in that stream, when he had these particular milestones that he would hit during, during this hole in one challenge, that the giveaways were his actual cards that if you were in that community, you knew that, you know, the mosaic card that he gave away to the stream was something that was going to resonate deeply within the sports card community. So we're always trying to find that balancing act of, it's not like we sit here and say, we must work with talent. We want to find experience with whether it's talent or non-talent that are going to play inside of the communities. And in that case, the sports card community was very fired up. What about like expanding the customer base? I mean, we have, you know, these enthusiast communities, you have, you know, a lot of raving fans within these communities. What strategies does Whatnot employ to like expand the customer base beyond like the existing user community? Yeah, we're always going to think about finding key sellers first as we go into a new category. Because uh, if that supply isn't there of amazing content and product, we doesn't we can't start with marketing and just say, hey, go find fill in the blank category people. If they come and there's not something for them, they're going to know quickly and it's not going to be a, a great experience. So our launch team um, is an incredible group that 
they're, they're sort of always thinking that you can liken it back to sort of a city launch team in a place like Uber, where they're thinking about what are those next big bet categories? And we don't just flip a switch and suddenly we're massively successful. It's very brick by brick. We built out a playbook and say, how do you go find those key sellers who are going to create that demand and that enthusiasm and have very capable skill that the whatnot seller, but also incredible products. And, and then when you turn on the marketing engine and point them back to that supply, people come in and say, well, if you know blank is selling quilting equipment or you know right now we have some really interesting categories in launch like beauty and quilting and um, electronics, and so really focused on supply first. And then um, as we get that flywheel going, then we think about what are the other marketing levers that we can bring to bring, bring audience into the, um, into the community in pretty real time. What about just generally like people who are not familiar with live commerce? Like, is there an effort to just attract people into, hey, if you don't know, because I could also see a lot of, yeah, even my personal friends and family of like, they don't even know this is really exists. And if they were to know about it, they'd be like, wait, what? I can go have this experience with this thing and do, you know, and buy this thing. Is there a big effort in that regard as well? Finding people who just don't have familiarity with, with live commerce? For the time being, and I think for the next couple of years, we'll still be focused on pretty tight-knit enthusiast communities. Okay. And I, you know, I, came, I came to to run marketing here and, and people say, we want to be a household name. I was like, nobody wants to be a household name more than me. Absolutely. <laughs> like why I'm here. And that would be so exciting to be a household name. But I think for, for now, we want to be in the right households. Um, I always talk to people about, um, do you collect things as a starting point? And if you don't, it doesn't mean we wouldn't welcome you with open arms or we don't think there's a whatnot experience for you. But it is really a different mindset of somebody who collects and who is willing to sort of invest this amount of time and energy into, into the shopping experience. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll grow and be more mass market over the course of time. But it's such, been such a huge part of our go-to-market strategy and where we found success in really finding and tapping those core communities first. Um, that we still have a lot of growth to be had in, in core communities um, for a, a good while. Okay. Okay. So on that note, how how are you measuring the success of the of the platform overall? Like you have all these categories. So like, how do you measure the success of the platform and then the categories individually? Yeah, uh, we're a hyper growth tech business, so there's no shortage of metrics or analytics here, um, and so. Metrics that really stand out that I think can be this true north rallying cry for us internally are, are one that comes to mind is um, sellers making more than $10,000 a month. And the reason I call that one out is it's such a strong signal of we're doing the right things for our community, of our community of buyers and sellers. And it's not the only metric. Again, we all go to a weekly metrics meeting. We are pouring into uh, a lot of different aspects of the platform to make sure that we're doing our jobs well. But the reason that one stands out is... You know, the business is only three and a half years old, so a lot of charts look very up and to the right over that time period. But that that one of sellers making more than ten thousand dollars a month is, you flash back to three years ago, that's in the you know very small number of maybe single or breaking out of double digits. You go to two years ago, that breaks into the hundreds, and then you go to last year where this is eking up into the few thousand. If you're doing that and you're providing that much economic value to people who are like you started off with saying, uh, turning their passions into a business, you're really building sustainable growth for our partners and our community of buyers and sellers. Um, and if we're doing that, then you know we're, we're building something that's seminal and that it'd be hard to take out of the equation because um, now they're building real scale business. And of course, we have sellers who are doing wildly more than that as well. Um, but it is something that can, that can show us 
okay, we're, we're, we're doing our jobs quite well. What kind of support strategically do, do sellers get? Like, is, are they getting, like how, how much marketing support are they getting if they're, you know, selling on, on whatnot? Yeah, a bunch of marketing support and also um, really incredible account management. And so, you know, our, our, I was just with one of our sellers at the Patrick Mahomes event and I won't speak for him by name, but was incredible to hear his journey uh, as a whatnot seller. He credits to so many different people at whatnot leaning into and giving him some encouragement on what it would be like to live sell, but completely out of that of like, how do you scale your business? How do you set up your infrastructure? How do you do fulfillment? You know, when you're doing 10,000 orders a month, how do you make sure that you have an incredibly high customer service rating for what gets fulfilled? And so our team is, I've never worked anywhere that is this customer obsessed. And our team wants to make sure our sellers um, not only thrive when they're on whatnot, but build scalable businesses, even when the cameras turn off. Oh, that's great. Can you brag on the team and and maybe double click into a, a marketing activation or something you're really proud of that they created or something that's coming down the pipe? Yeah, nothing that I'll, I'll foreshadow, um, except for the couple of cons that we have on the horizon. Our two biggest cons of the year are San Diego Comic-Con and the National um, in two pretty different spaces. Obviously, Comic-Con's a bit of the Super Bowl for everything, both in comics, but also in the adjacent geek culture universe. Um, and then the national is the same, but for sports cards. And so those things are both, I, I wake up to a Slack tracker that tells you how many days away they are. And now that it's gone into the sub 20 days away, you know, it's, it's go time. I'll brag on the team that really balancing this, what's going to land in the community, but also drive back for the business and deliver against the business goals is something that's always front of mind. And for the size of this team and for the, capability set of this team, it's pretty remarkable. It's a very small group of people who are so scrappy. Um, that Mahomes activation that we did a couple of weeks ago, for, for people who are listening, we went live with Patrick Mahomes. He was live for about 45 minutes and he did a hole-in-one challenge. And if he hit a hole-in-one, we were going to give a million dollars to his charity. Um, spoiler alert, he didn't hit a hole-in-one, but he hit some other amazing shots. We gave uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars to his charity through this interactive experience. And that whole thing came together in less than a couple of weeks. Um, so it was a, a bit of an inbound through an ongoing conversation we'd had with the Mahomes team. And big shout out to the team of, of I don't, again, don't know that I've ever worked anywhere where um, you get that call. And sure, it's exciting. You want to go into go mode immediately. But people went and stretched into the margins of their jobs and filled in every single gap. And um, it was it feels incredible to to be that close to an experience like that. Hit the button, go live in front of you know, thousands of people, um, and you, you can't screw it up once you're live. Like you have to pull that off. So shout out to the team on just how much they're able to do while still building incredibly cool. Uh, I don't want to say never been done because I think it's a bit of a throwaway word in marketing, but it is pretty unique that, that we're building experiences like this. Okay. Okay. This is awesome. So. Take us kind of take us home here with kind of two pieces. One is just like what what does the future look like for live commerce for whatnot? Like what do you how do you see the experience happening from from a seller and shopper you know experience? Like what's the future look like? Uh, maybe you can touch on there's new emerging technologies that are really exciting coming down the pipeline. So just give us a, like a a vision of what's to come, and then end off with like what's what's the future look like for Andy? What are you excited about? Sure, for us. The future looks um, like doing what we've been doing over the last few years and continue to scale and continue to grow and provide value to our, our communities of buyers and sellers. Um, we will be in a lot more categories and we will grow those categories to 
hopefully multi-billion dollar businesses as standalone categories. Tons of work to do that. Obviously, easier said than done. But um, if we mirror what we've done uh, for the core categories that we have right now and continue to scale and grow those and especially expand those into new categories, um, so many categories make sense for live selling. And uh, I think we, we definitely look at it as being an inning one of a very long-term experience to building a, a multi-generational e-commerce platform. So not going to say fully more of the same. Again, it's a lot of work to get there, but we'll be in a lot of categories that, that grow to be uh, monster categories. For me personally, it's to be here and be a part of that and, and go brick by brick. You mentioned kind of what was my mindset coming in. And one of those, just meet the organization where it is. Um, my, my, Nature is to not try to put out some grandiose like five-year plan. Um, this business will have a lot of a, a lot a lot to build in the next five years. We need to build for the next five months for the time being, and then go from there. I love it, Andy. It's amazing. It seems like you have this really good balance of like binoculars and a magnifying glass. It's like kind of knowing like how far to go, but also like realizing, hey, the table's still set. We must like move forward today and. Like I said earlier, like there's just a lot of velocity. It's a lot of momentum and the world is changing so fast. So being a marketing leader and having to balance that, hiring people, strategy, you know, keeping the momentum going while the world is changing, while, you know, commerce is changing. It's just a beautiful dance that I, I believe you're doing well. So thank you so much for being on Marketing Trends. This was such a cool conversation. And I know folks that will listen, if you're not a fan of whatnot, you gotta go check them out. And if you're not buying and collecting things, once you see some of these categories, like I've already got some bookmarked, you'll you'll realize that you're gonna start to become a collector if you haven't. So Andy, thanks for being here. This was such an epic conversation. Thank you for having me, really appreciate it. 